Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disability Dish, the UML Perspective. My name is Janelle Diaz. This is episode nine. I'm an assistant director in disability services, and I'm co-hosting with... Hi, everybody. Jody Ragens, director of disability services. So today we have a exciting topic, um, disability and intersectionality. And we're also going to be talking about terminology. We have some great guest speakers with us today who we will have introduce themselves in a moment. But we just want to have a little disclaimer. Like always, this is just a discussion, conversation. These are our opinions and perspectives on today's episode topic. So... I'm going to have everyone kind of get things started. If you can please, or someone first start by saying your name, your role at the university, and your relationship with the word disability, if you have one. Uh, I'll, I'll start, if that's okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Keith Mitchell. And I'm an associate professor of English here at UMass Lowell. And uh, when I, I first read the question about my relationship with the word disability, I had to really think to see if I actually had a relationship with the word disability. Um, because disability is such a broad, broad topic. But I think uh, my relationship with the word disability uh, stems from my relationship with a few members of my immediate family. I have a nephew and a niece who have been suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder for decades. Um, they're in their 40s now. Um, uh, both my nephew and niece began showing si signs of their of their uh, disabilities later in life, I think in their 20s, which from I've come to understand through research is pretty common. Um, and uh, they were in their early 20s when their, their emotional and, and, and psychiatric disabilities sort of began to manifest themselves. So, uh, and and I remember that initially my two brothers uh, did not understand what was going on with my niece and nephew, but but luckily um, they were both in the military. So they had very good uh, general physicians. So then we're able to put them in contact with, you know, various resources that could really help them. And uh, it's been uh, really important for them to have those resources, which they still use today. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. And that has come up before. Having access to resources can really make a difference in someone's diagnosis and, um, you know, independence. Um, okay. So, hello. Uh, my my name is Anshel Isles. Most people call me Shelley. Uh, my role at the university is that I'm a senior here, and uh, my I'm I'm a liberal arts major, focusing on health sciences and disability studies. Um. So my relationship to the term disability, just like he said, it, I think it's it's a broader term for sure. Um, I myself identify as an individual with a disability. I have oculocutaneous albinism, um, which literally means albinism that affects both the skin and the eyes. And be, uh, as a consequence, unfortunately, I have low vision. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I know the term well. I also, I'm also doing an internship for people that have brain injury. So yes, I have a very good relationship with the term disability and its broadness as well. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, Ben, go ahead. 
Um, hi, my name is Binette, and I'm a student at UML. And my relationship to the word disability is that um, I'm visually impaired. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm Marie McDuffie Clark. I am the assistant director of Multicultural Affairs. Um, I really love my job. I am new to UMass Lowell, but I've been doing this uh, multicultural affairs work um, and working with international students for about 10 years now. That's really kind of crazy to hear that out loud. Um, but um, my relationship with the word disability has evolved within that time as well, working with students, um, working with students from all different backgrounds and seeing kind of what their challenges have been, what their successes have been, um, what their needs are. So it's been kind of a, an evolving process and then had me kind of look into my own immediate family. My brother um, has um, vision and hearing disabilities um, and what that means for him to study. Like he's now first year in college and trying to do uh, community college and what that, just get a feel for what that is and what that means and how to navigate through it. And here's me, big sister, like you got to do this and that and the other thing um, and get in touch with this person because they'll help you. Uh, so it's been really kind of like, um, I have to check myself of like, yeah, no, you can do it himself and like, let me back off a little bit versus like, oh, but I know all the things. Um, so. That, that's kind of been my relationship, uh, professionally and personally, with the word. Thanks. Okay, and we were just beginning to go for, does anybody feel like they have a relationship with today's topic about intersectionality or terminology or those kind of pieces? Um, I think Anshul with Shelly, we're going to go with Shelly, right? Um, Shelly yes. was sharing that, um, you know, that Yes, to some extent, but it's 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 complicated, basically, which is what I have decided we probably need to rename this podcast because it's complicated. Just <laughs> <laughs> by Kimberly Crenshaw's definition, then I think you'll be all set. <laughs> so maybe we can establish with some of our sort of pros in the room in terms of like what is the definition of intersectionality to some people? Like, what does that even mean to you when we use this word? Because it's a pretty higher ed pop term, but you know. So I, what it means to me is that it kind of validates my experience as and everyone's experience that you're not just kind of defined by one thing. You're not just like your identity as a, a you know, you are a person who is like black, female, has a disability or not a disability or um, has, you know, whatever, all these things, they, they're combined, they happen simultaneously. It's how I navigate through the world. Um, and that to me, in that simplest mm -hmm. terms, I, I, not to give it a higher end kind of definition, but intersectionality means to me, all of those things intertwined and in how I navigate through the world. Um, and those things are important uh, and they can't be negated at one point or the other. I, I it was interesting when I went to college, like I had, I felt I had to choose between going to the women's center versus the multicultural center. And I was like, oh no, what, what, what part of my, who am I right now do I go to? And intersectionality means I don't have to choose. So that's my thoughts on that. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. Uh, totally like I have this kind of same definition for me. 
And I honestly never heard of that word before. Look, this podcast, but I think it's really interesting. And that's so true that, yes, I am a woman, but I'm also a Black woman. And I'm also a woman who has a disability. And they're all one. Like, you can't and shouldn't separate it to me. And they're all part of me. And there's no way I can describe myself with only one word mm-hmm. because it's all part of who I am. Yes. Yeah, I think as Shelly uh, uh, and Bennett were talking about and Marie, um, that for me, intersectionality means sort of, I look at it, uh, I used to look at it when I was in grad school, looking at it from uh, really Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 coined the phrase, uh, but but looking at it in terms of the interconnectedness uh, of the social categories like race and class and gender, sexuality. And then I started look, thinking about it even in more granular terms. For example, I'm from the South originally, um, looking at it in terms of what my profession is. And again, all of these things are inter- interconnected and sometimes uh, one of the quote-unquote categorizations takes precedence over the other mm-hmm. and sometimes not. And so uh, intersectionality is important for me. I teach English and I, it's something that I really uh, emphasize in my literature classes based upon the kinds of books that I have students read. I want them to read a diverse uh, books from diverse uh uh, diverse sections of uh, or categories of people, I guess, mm-hmm. um, in terms of race, sexuality, class, and uh, for uh, my students to have a conversation about these things, because diversity, of course, is absolutely connected to intersectionality, and uh, I think, and representation, and I think that's very important for me as a teacher to make sure that when I do teach certain texts, that I try to represent um represents a student population here at UMass Lowell. We're a super intersectional population um, and looking at our new chancellor who basically lives in every intersectional category you can have um, that really kind of represents what what we've got going on and I think what for me also like another layer of it then moves into like the power, privilege, rights, Mm -hmm. politics, oppression category and how these kind of play into that. Mm -hmm. But I guess I need to make a pun or a joke that like you really can't dissect the intersect. Um was that like too cheesy? Um but (laughs) not at all. (laughs) But um I I just felt like I had to. (laughs) So humor is always appreciated. Yes. We try to. I try to bring laughs in. We have heavy. Po- we have heavy topics, but we like gotta find moments. Yeah. Um. I was so gonna say. I think, yeah. Sorry. Well, I was just gonna say. I know that uh, a lot of, especially in fine arts, humanities, and social sciences. I'm not. I'm not uh, as cognizant about this in terms of the North Campus faculty and the courses that they teach. But in fine arts, humanities, and social sciences. I think most of the departments put an emphasis on intersectionality and put an emphasis on diversity. Um, I'm very proud of the English department. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a part yeah. of it, but I see what my other colleagues are doing. For example, one of my colleagues, uh, Becca Richardson, uh, Rebecca is teaching a course this spring 
um, that is called uh, 21st Century Feminisms, mm -hmm. and it's going to include uh, trans feminism, mm -hmm. which I think is pretty new and mm -hmm. cutting edge and important. And so those are the kinds of things that, uh, and again, it's just not, it's not just her, but those are the kinds of issues and ideas that, that uh, we in the English department are really trying to put out there to let our students know that we hear them and that we appreciate them and we want their voices to be represented. Because mm -hmm. different voices are an asset. Like if yeah. we <clears throat> continue to do the same, like assimilate mm -hmm. into the thing, we, we don't grow and we don't like, what, what are we missing? What are we, I, I always think about like, um, the first explorers, like if they didn't like keep diving in and seeing like, well, well what's in here? What's there? Like, but how do you know if you don't keep going? Um, so I would also like press, I, I would hope this is happening on North Campus, but there's always room for intersectionality, like especially within the sciences. Mm -hmm. um, what are the things that we're missing like in different countries and mm -hmm. different cultures? Like, what are we not studying? What are the, you know, we just went through a pandemic, but how does it affect these folks versus mm -hmm. those folks? Like mm -hmm. that is an important question that we should be asking ourselves is that it's not one box fits all. Yeah, it comes up a little bit too, like women in STEM. It comes mm -hmm. up with first generation in STEM. And oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, black students in STEM. Mm -hmm. We have the new Asian American uh, Center, mm -hmm. which I'm not saying correctly. I apologize. Um, but but you know, and sort of focus on you know some of the those pieces and sort of research research opportunities. I yeah. think are a big one. So. Yeah. It's not as easy for them to design cool creative curriculums, but I think in terms of at least making sure that they're addressing the students that are sitting in the classroom and yeah. sort of their various needs is is how they can address it. And I would just like to add one thing, just kind of piggybacking off of what Ed Keith said uh, not too long ago. Um, so in terms of society, um, acknowledging intersectionality, I think that would be that would be great if society had adopted this mentality, like or awareness, I should say, about intersectionality, because maybe it would create less problems, less tension. Um, we would see fewer cases of discrimination, harassment, uh, homophobia, transphobia, anything, anything really. Just I think society would run smoother if everybody had adopted some awareness of intersectionality for sure. You answered our next question, Shelley. So <laughs> for the rest of um, our podcast guests, do you believe society plays a role in our perceptions of what intersectionality is? or how we view intersectionality or how we, you know, um, kind of, it was talked about a bit, like how we value certain identities versus others. I 100% I agree with, with Shelley about the, about the, the perceptions of intersectional, intersectionality in our society. And I, I've heard, uh, you know, I've read, uh, uh, things and arguments from less progressive folks about the ideas undergirding intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they think it means giving special treatment and consideration to people, you know, not in the majority, which mm -hmm. of course is ridiculous. It simply means mm -hmm. to treat people equitably by taking into consideration all aspects of who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. And when Marie brought up the, the uh, notion of uh, COVID, uh, a lot of those folks who perhaps did not view themselves in an intersectional way now, because a lot of people have a long-term COVID, 
-hmm. and symptoms. Now they have a quote unquote disability. I don't know how mm -hmm. the science community is uh, defining that at this point, but uh, now they will begin to see what, if they hadn't thought about it before, now they'll, be, they'll begin to think about what it means to uh, to live in intersectionality. And I think yeah. that's that's going to be very important for it's us to understand. This has come up a little bit too with that, where there's there's some theory that you know we're all temporarily abled if we're not if we don't if we consider ourselves abled then we we may be you know all be considered temporarily abled you never really know you could walk out on the street and something could happen but um mm -hmm. but also with covid there were also people that had functioning disabilities that they didn't have to bring into a workplace or a school setting yeah. but then covid brought up for them a divide you mm -hmm. know and then they had to move a new section of their identity out more forward yeah. and more and more present because mm -hmm. perhaps they were immunocompromised in a yes. way that hadn't really come up for them before or mm -hmm. um you know there were there were other there were you know other many other variables and long, long COVID is another new one that you know we'll be bringing up for people as we understand it better in terms mm -hmm. of you know what they're managing I don't know if you all remember but when first at the pandemic when the the vaccines were coming out and we we were saying like oh well we're going to do this in this way where the folks that are most affected are going to go first and things like that I had colleagues who didn't want it to like we had to write in language you don't have to share when you got your COVID vaccine or like don't ask anybody when they got their COVID vaccine right. because it like you said, they didn't want now part of their right. identity that they may not have needed to like share. They now needed to share because, oh, I I I really do need to get a vaccine. Right. I, and you yeah. thought about it. I thought about it, and mm -hmm. I've talked about it before that my disability identity is complicated. I have Crohn's disease, and you know, on most days it's Gosh. manageable, but it's, it qualified me for like an earlier vaccine. But did I want to take a seat away from somebody else? You yeah. know, and those those kind of pieces. So yeah, that pulls us off the topic a little bit, but. I but it does, you know, what, what we what we are often talking about is how that this identity, you know, come come is a piece of people's lives in all the different ways and how it comes and goes in different people's lives. Or do you, like more folks <clears throat> understand now that their identities aren't in, intersecting. If you thought that you were kind of more of like whatever the quote unquote norm is, you actually have all these different pieces that shape you, who you are. Um and that that's coming out more and more, and I, I it's laughable the the backlash against intersectionality mm -hmm. because uh, it it really does help um, more so than hurt. So mm -hmm. and also it's been out since the eighties, and why are we mad about it now? That's like a <laughs> little little bit I'm like my yeah. first kind of introduction to it. I feel like when it, I was either in college or grad school, and I was learning about the concept in a psych program of doing a genogram, which, you know, prior to that had been your, your typical family tree, which mm -hmm. was like just lines of, of people on the family. But the, mm -hmm. the idea of a genogram, bringing in more content, more information, making connections, patterns, and histories um, began to bring up different, different factors on people and different mm -hmm. things. And so kind of understand, like when you have to do your own, or you did one with a client, like understanding how complex the web was of one's mm -hmm. life um, that you don't maybe don't have at the front of your mindset all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's, you know, we, we can toss religion into it. We can toss, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, yeah, we've tossed and we already talked about gender and sexuality into it. We can toss mm -hmm. um, socioeconomic status. We can talk about 
that Keith is from the South and we're from the North and what is that, you know, or somebody who's international, um, you know, so it's, it's, it, it isn't even really a definable set of items. Yeah. <laughs> and it has a lot to do with how other people perceive you, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if you're from another country or if you're from the South, uh, I know there have been not, it doesn't happen that often anymore, but I know that a lot of times people, um we'll question the intelligence of people from the south mm -hmm. or make assumptions yeah. about their political leanings mm -hmm. and those kind of things mm -hmm. uh and sometimes that can be problematic so mm -hmm. yeah yeah even but it's also like sorry were you were you, been, were you saying something no you I'm are sorry okay <laughs> all right so i was gonna say like it's like everybody in society like has like different notions about other people, like where they come from, you know, race, gender, um, socioeconomic status. So it's like everybody has these notions and it's like whether you agree with them or you don't agree with them. It's just, it's interesting to hear other people's point of views on different stuff. Like, um, so I know I'm kind of bringing up a rough subject, but when they overturned Roe v. Wade, like you started on social media, how people expressed how they felt about Roe v. Wade. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you definitely you see more of it now than than ever before, especially like after COVID, during COVID. Um, you saw some views like, you know, people were pretty divided when it came to vaccinations mm -hmm. or getting the vaccines. Um, people were also divided about the mask mandates every state had or or, you know, just just other things too. I know they seem they, they might be little things now, but it's just when you when you look now, like, you know, looking back then it's like, wow people really had some opinions that I never really knew about. So it was just interesting to hear that stuff. And mainly mostly heard it on social media or t television. So. And that can really create, yeah. sorry, that can really create a divide. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Divide and it has, yeah, it absolutely has. <laughs> and I like it as, as Shelly was saying, you know, uh, the mask mandates and people debating a, about whether or not they should have to get uh, the vaccine and those kinds of things. Because we're we're in the immediacy of it, right in the middle of this sort of historical moment, it's going to take probably decades with historians, uh, people in the medical profession and other uh, disciplines mm -hmm. looking back mm -hmm. and really trying to assess what all of this meant. Like, why were people so really so upset about the mask mandates? Uh, what what was the effect? uh of uh you know the sort of the neg negative rhetoric about uh, getting the vaccines uh what was all of that about and so it's just like uh and, and also roe v wade of course people are going to historians and and uh, political scientists they're going to look back and 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 really have to make they're going to be the ones to make an assessment of how we dealt with these things and of course social media bringing all of that into it so even in the future is going to be a very interesting time. Sometimes I talk to my students about 9-11, uh, and I'm not sure the ages of the folks here, but I, sometimes I talk about uh, America or the world in terms of pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Mm -hmm. The world was very different mm -hmm. pre-9-11. I remember that if you like 10 minutes before your plane took off, you could walk right up the run runway and you can get you could get on the plane. You didn't have to go through all of the the, the checks and everything. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that folks today, especially the younger people, but but people living in this time of COVID and the pandemic, they will look at the world pre pandemic and post pandemic. Yeah. And that's certainly going to be something that folks are going to uh, really uh, think about. 
in terms of how the world has changed uh, for uh, particularly you remember uh, middle schoolers and kindergartners having to put on masks, those kind. Of, I mean, all of these kinds of issues. There was that debate too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the first half of my son's life, his teachers had like masks on and mm -hmm. like, you know, it could go back and forth. And he was, you know, like it was normalized for him. Yeah. And I think about normalized, like you go back and say the the pre 9-11 of the movies are like, oh, run to go like catch <laughs> him on the plane. That does not happen. Say goodbye, yeah. right? No, not at right. all. Yeah. Yeah. Security is strict now with these airports exactly. for a reason. Really? <laughs> but yeah. so, for a reason. An interesting thing that I think we're 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 dancing on is sort of that idea of, um, you know, we're gonna move on to our next question momentarily. But the is that each of these sort of life defining moments and and particularly nine eleven and now the pandemic and mo and things of the pandemic, I think they rose up different identities at different times. Like a nine eleven one. I personally never thought twice about Muslims really That's in society right. prior to, and then, you know, they, you know, were seen as a very, very certain specific identity um, and, and, and in our society sort of evoked fear and, and many American Muslims were, you know, I have multiple identities here. I'm an American. I was born here, yes. you know, yes. and, mm -hmm. um, right. and, and that didn't necessarily matter mm. in, in that way. And there was a real mm -hmm. intersectional sort of mind like disaster going on there of, of which identity to, to dance in. And I think COVID did some of that with certain identities too. It certainly took socioeconomic classes mm -hmm. into a different place than if you had a better home to be in when we were in isolation and you had more comfort yeah. and you had internet, yeah. um, you know, even though your circumstances were really miserable because we all had miserable circumstances compared to somebody who had a very different, or they were working at a job where they must come in and they couldn't mm -hmm. be safe and they couldn't remain, um, you know, isolated mm -hmm. um, because of their, so, you know, so that was a category that got super raised up high, you know, and so, um, you know, that I feel like there's always sort of like different levels of, of identities that are kind of playing a chess game um, mm -hmm. in some way. So bringing it back into the disability centric version of this podcast <laughs> that we have, um, so we've done a lot of good society talk. I think we've established a good baseline. Um, so thinking about this inter intersectionality topic, you know, when we're providing support and inclusion with people of various disabilities, you know, is there something about intersectionality that we can be utilizing and keeping in mind or, you know, open question? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I, I think what happens is that there's, there's many more like unfortunate gaps um, when we talk about um, folks that are historically underserved or like not thought to like, like they're already like at the low level, either socioeconomic status or like race, gender. And so you add on top of a disability and it's just like, eh, okay. And so I remember like for my brother, it was kind of harder for folks to actually believe that he had vision issues or hearing issues. They were like, and even folks in my own family who did not want to believe like, oh, he's fine. He doesn't need like this or that or the other thing. And so having access or having someone actually like believe that you have like a disability, like uh, to talk about intersectionality, that's that's generational. Um, that's part of like his, you know, 
uh, gender, him being male, like we didn't want to think that like, oh, he's less than or weaker. Um, so all of those things came into play um, just based on his intersecting identities um, and at a disadvantage, unfortunately. Um, we didn't, we weren't able to diagnose him until um, maybe middle school, which that that's still a lot of learning for him that it was lost that he could have like if he, he got there sooner. So yeah, I, I was thinking about this this question uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, as several folks on the panel talked about, you know the the intersection of race and disability, and you can you can add on you know, other uh, identities like sexual orientation, class, and gender. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, class has a really important uh, part in how we look at uh, and view disability and respond to the needs of uh, uh, people with various challenges. Um, for example, you know, someone who is trans, disabled, and Native American Mm -hmm. probably would be more at risk for not getting the kinds of medical care and attention that they need and deserve. And I think, you know, if you have a low, lower socioeconomic class, then more likely you will have more difficulty, say, with accessibility to buildings and those kinds of things in, in uh, uh, neighborhoods that are uh, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. Um, so that has a profound effect on uh, one's quality of life. Uh, depending upon what you have access to and depending upon your social economic status in your class. And that includes schools, of course. I, you know, those schools who are in the wealthier parts of towns and cities certainly will have the money uh, and the, uh, the resources to help their students um, far more than those who are in, you know, who, who are in more depressed and socioeconomic uh, areas that that don't have these kinds of resources and again that affects the uh the ability to learn the ability to feel confident in oneself the ability to to feel that one can succeed especially if you know if you know that there are not the kinds of resources or the attention is not being paid to what you need in order for you to thrive as a student or thrive as a person in a certain environment I think that's you're hitting the nail on the head, Dr. Mitchell, um, from the beginning um, of this podcast. Access to resources can really define someone's experience um, and success as an overall individual, um, especially when they have various identities that they belong to. And at its core and its baseline there's access to resources and there's even just like knowledge of an education of um, and you know somebody who belongs to certain subsets within an intersectional identity they're going to get more education they're going to be treated differently in a way where somebody's going to say you know that there's um you know there's resources for that um yeah. you know or somebody else may be spending their time not knowing that there are resources for that mm -hmm. um or even going through the process of navigating those resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of the layers that come with accessing right. different resources. School systems that have the time to do neuropsych testing for students mm -hmm. and, you know, or um, have the time to prepare their students for what to expect in college with a disability and the, those sorts of things. Um, you know, that, that happens a lot. I always say sometimes um, my disability is my second 
um, full-time job, you know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of mm -hmm. keeping up with day-to-day resources and supports it's I just feel like I just never have enough time it just becomes sometimes extremely overwhelming mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm someone that comes from a middle class you know family um so and I have access to certain resources I can't imagine someone who doesn't mm -hmm. and we talk about that I talk about that a lot with students too especially this time of year where you know the they may even have a major where the expectation is you have to take you know, certain clustered classes together to progress through and you, you know, and, and you may need to be taking this much at a time or whatever. And, and sometimes I say, but managing your, your health or your mental health mm -hmm. or whatever, that's occupying, that, that's a more than a class in itself right now for you. And so, mm -hmm. so four classes is goes above anything you, else. Yeah. Would you say, Shelly? I said, I think it should go above everything else in life, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm-hmm. We think so too, but it like doesn't. Often people are saying, but I am supposed to be here as a college student. I'm supposed to progress. I'm supposed to graduate at a certain time. I'm supposed to, I'm 24 and I haven't met XYZ goal or whatever, you know, um, are those things. Though. Exactly. In society. Yeah. Um, yeah parents, race, society, I don't know, things that we tell ourselves, a comparison right. to peers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, like I totally agree. Like sometimes you have like that pressure. Like for me, I want to be, I think I have to give 110% in everything that I do because I have a disability, because I can't see, but I want to be able to be on the same level like everybody else who hasn't plus being like a woman plus having albinism like it's hard to compete with everybody else mm -hmm. and not having sometimes I feel like I don't want to see my disability as my weakness but other people do, do see it as my weakness but I want to show and that's why I have to feel like I feel like I have to get go that extra mile mm -hmm. even if I don't necessarily have to because people say yeah you have like you don't have to push yourself but then at the same time I feel like I have to push myself to show you yeah that I'm I deserve to be here mm -hmm. and that I have a place here that's a lot to prove yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pressures that society puts on us the pressure mm -hmm. and, and I, so, that's what it feels like to me some days I'm I'm not I'm not going to lie. It's, you know, this is, you know, the college has been a rocky road for me personally, just academically, not socially, but more academically than anything else. But, um, and like Bennett said, it's like, you know, not everybody's going to understand your disability. Um, all throughout my schooling career, it's been, my disability has been like subject to a lot of misunderstandings with professors. Um, like they'll think I just slack off or that I'm not motivated, but that's, that is, that is entirely false. Like I came here to, to work hard, you know, of course, meet people along the way and just to get a degree so I can be successful in life. But it's hard because not all, not all the professors, actually a good portion of professors aren't willing to accommodate or they're not willing to understand or really take the time to listen to an individual. And that to me is just, it's, it's just frustrating because all I really want to do is just succeed. But like, it's like, I put in the work, I'm, I'm committed. Like I'll put in, like, I'll do whatever, what, whatever it takes, but I just don't get the result. 
like that's what I've been seeing in a lot of throughout my academic career here. So it's it's unfortunate, but at the same time, it's it's good because I can I understand myself better. And um, I think my only advice to anybody that's in my situation, or even like Bennett or like any any other student here at this university that has disability and you know academics, you know, is kind of a struggle. Um, I'm here to tell you that this it's not how the world how the outside world works. Like, you know, no, you're not gonna be given a test, you're not gonna be given a paper or anything. You're just gonna go out, just work hard, and that's all that, you know, that's all it's gonna pay off. But you know, your grades, papers, assignments, you know, that that shouldn't define you. And I'm not saying, you know, don't try hard, but you know, please always try hard. But you know, none of that stuff is gonna matter. Grades should not define you. So you shouldn't you shouldn't beat yourself up over it, is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say. I hear you. There yeah. are different structures where people excel. That's at, right. You know, yeah. College is a tough structure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's it's tough, all right. And yeah. and costly. Can I say yeah. costly? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh one one of the challenges that uh many instructors have, those who who want to help students with disabilities uh to to be as successful as possible. Uh, is that a lot of students don't want to identify as having a disability. And so they don't want to go to disability services to get the proper paperwork so that we can then make the accommodations. And uh, that can be very frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating for the student, but it, I think it uh, it is also as frustrating for the professor or uh, the instructor because we want to help, most of mm -hmm. us do. And I'm sorry that Shelley has had, and others have had situations where professors are just not understanding uh, that uh, about uh, student situations. But I think a lot of a lot of the professors do want to help as much as they possibly can. But we can't really do anything until a student identifies, it goes to the uh, disability services to officially identify as someone with a disability, so. And that, you know, that's actually, that was gonna be my next point to bring up was the the problems with self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's just- And we that, see that beyond just the disability skill. issue, right? Self-advocacy is just so, across like, the board. I mean, they, I really had to do it in middle school and all throughout high school and even now I'm still doing it. Um, I. I'd like to say that I'm I'm better at it. Not perfect. Nobody's perfect at anything, but I'm I'm getting better. I'm, you know, not a hundred percent, but I, I'm getting better at advocating for sure and just, you know, speaking about what, what I need in order to to succeed and what the professor should know. And, you know, just just so they have a better understanding and, you know, maybe like come the next semester we can hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Because sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Because I feel like sometimes it's all also on us, like people with a disability, to remember that people can't read our minds. Like people can't look at our face and tell like what we need. We have to speak up for ourselves and let people know what they can do because maybe they want to do it. But if we don't advocate for yourself, they're not able to do that because they can't tell. For me, for example, people... Most people don't know that I'm visually impaired and that my eyes re are really, really bad because many people wear glasses, so they're not able to tell. So if they do something wrong, then it's not because maybe they want to, but because they don't know. So speaking up is very important. And I had to learn that for myself, too, 
and yeah yeah it's definitely a skill for sure to to be able to have the confidence or the audacity to speak up especially like to somebody like that's like in a higher ranking position like I just think it's and then you got always have the professors that are on an insane power trip but that's just me (laughs) that's I'm just do you think there's anything intersectional about self-advocacy that makes things easier or harder or more oh, definitely. complicated, um, you know, thinking about that or even your own experience. For sure. For sure. There's, there's, there's definitely some intersectionality pieces. Um, for one, I think it has to do, I think it would mostly tie in a gender and race. So like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of go off the, use the example here of people that are of color, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're kind of like, and I feel terrible for saying this, but they're seen as less superior. Like maybe like society is more apt to help somebody out who is white versus somebody who's of color. Um, unfortunately, we're we're kind of seeing a pattern where history is kind of repeating itself. Um, and you see it like especially like with like law enforcement and stuff too. So, Kelly, I know that there's always it's always so hard because like these conversations here because like. These are facts, though. Like yeah. they're, they're, yeah, like it yeah. happens every day, and that's like, like part of the. Like the, I said, I, I apologize. I'm bringing up some rough conversation, some rough topics. That's but, what we're here to do right now. Yeah, right. Just, yeah. yeah. kind of yeah. speaking, yeah. speaking our minds here. Yeah, and and you brought up you know Roe versus Wade and those yeah. kind of pieces, and you know that's a that's a, a gender thing that suddenly got put back onto a plate that, you know, mm-hmm. seemed, mm-hmm. seemed like it was in another room. Um, and that's why you yeah. didn't want to keep up because yeah. you think something's okay. And it's really, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you always have to be, um, and, and talk about intersectionality, mm-hmm. depending on like where you're at, you always feel like you have to keep, like you said, mm-hmm. Jeanette, like going to prove yourself, like, no, actually this is important. No, this is actually like very valuable. No, this is actually an asset. And it feels like a constant, like, mm-hmm. and I, I saw your question in the chat, Janelle, but like advocacy, definitely. Wh- where is our focus all the time? And sometimes you can be so focused on this piece and we get a lot of people going and they're, they're all on board and we're here. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, we forgot about, voter rights and like mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that and so we thought that was okay and now we have to keep going back and forth so what the interesting thing in my mind is that it's all related yeah. so like what my struggle seems to be just you know black women that's it like that's what I go through all the time actually no it actually is affected by what international students go through or what folks that you know i I wouldn't even because the disabilities or trans folks all of our struggles like are the same and i will also include my white allies it's the same Mm -hmm. because you have all these things that are shaping us together in society and we only get one earth and Mm -hmm. we are constantly bombarded with the fact of science uh time's a ticking so we have to figure out how we're going to like work together at this Mm -hmm. point this base level of like i i know we come from this place this place we have this history that history but knowing and having more knowledge and being able to like have the confidence to speak up 
is a, and establishing is a, just basic humanity and respect will you know would would be a nice baseline yeah. to have right it's yeah. just yeah we are you know we are people and you know we're human um that, that all brings us to the same table um but yeah and and then there's a thing about advocacy when I mean Finney you were kind of really saying like I also feel too like that's exhausting um <laughs> right? right um so right. let's acknowledge the inevitable too that like that's a fight and that's a fight that you have to fight and that matters to you and is important and gets you results yeah. but it's exhausting and then there are people that just either they get that major mental mental wellness sort of umbrella that that comes over and and doesn't really stop the rain or they you know um they back down from advocating because it's just it's tiresome every day you know to yeah. explain it and and you know and push and push and push and push and so hard too yeah yeah that, there's, that's, some, there's that's, times where it's absolutely necessary though yeah yeah yeah, that's a lot of it's a lot of energy expended, which could mm -hmm. be expended in other things like your academics or your social yeah. life and other things. Yeah. But yeah. as Shelley was saying, it's absolutely necessary yeah. because, as Bennett was saying, uh, people can't read our minds. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have to advocate for ourselves in order to get the things that we want, the things yeah. that we need. Yeah. Okay. And, so. and like a Go ahead. Final like thought. I said, okay, final thought. I'll, I'll make it quick. Um, I know this might sound a little redundant, but again, with the whole like pushing and pushing, it's like, it's, it can be harder. Like just like a one, it can't be one time. Like if a professor is not willing to understand just to really push and push and push, like if you push and push and push, they'll eventually understand you. And then, yeah, maybe they'll follow through hopefully. But yeah, that's all I really wanted to say. Just or finding other avenues or other allies or other. Or, yeah. So, yeah. Like yeah. I said, yeah. 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 Apologize if that sounded redundant, but no, no, it's good. So we actually, Janelle and I were talking behind the scenes and we decided that we're going to need to do a part B either with this group or in just in the future okay. podcast of like the terminology stuff, because we yeah. really want to talk about person first language versus mm -hmm. like disability first language, but right, it's just right. so vibrant that we were, we were like, let's roll with this. So, so <laughs> yeah. stay tuned for a part B. Um, I'm but glad so you mentioned that part B because, um, you know, I, I'm I'm working on an article that I'm writing uh, an article for a novel that I've been reading, but it, to to publish. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, some of the characters have disabilities, and I had to educate myself on what's the right terminology. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, for sure. You know, the, the jargon. Uh, right. You go to the gov. There's a government website, and then there's uh, many other different websites, and most mm -hmm. of them say the same thing. But then there are some differences within those various websites in terms of the the correct terminology to use for various kinds of disabilities. So anyway, yeah, and it's intersectional <laughs> in and of itself in yeah. its own way. And you, you know, I was writing some paperwork this week with some of my colleagues on like dietary stuff, and there's a there's a religious versions of diets and I was mm -hmm. trying to even figure out like does you know house of worship like really cover all the ways that somebody where somebody might be connected to and yeah. is clergy the right term right. or is not right. you know I'm Jewish I don't even know and right. so um you know and and so you know a whole different intersectional component of, of things where I was like I know I could talk about disability diet stuff but you know as far as the religious 
section on this document mm-hmm. we're working on. Like I had to, you know, kind of dig into some unknown knowledge as well yeah. and, and ask around. Um, so yeah, I mean, the good point, and I think we can do our final, final question is, you know, we have to keep educating ourselves on, yes. on areas that we're not as familiar with and that way we can stay kind of educated, understanding, empathetic people who at least are open to asking the questions and not just thinking this is the way it is, right? Yeah. Um, so, Janelle, okay. take us home. Yeah, final question. So after this conversation, what is the takeaway that will stick with you? And has anything changed about how you feel either as a person with a disability or as an ally? about disability stigma. So a takeaway that will stick with you and has anything changed about how you're feeling about disability stigma? I think a takeaway that has that that I've gotten from our conversation is how important intersectionality is to disabilities, mm-hmm. right? And I, uh, in conversations around disabilities, something that I hadn't really thought about before Right. Uh, but how important it is for, you know, our UML community, for our society, for the world to really think about uh, intersectionality and to think about people in terms of the wholeness, everything that makes up who that person is in order for us to have better relationships with each other and, to, and a better understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Does anyone else feel like they have a takeaway they want to share or new thoughts on disability stigma? Um, so I took away a lot like that it's really important that intersectionality is really important. And I've learned a lot. I've been I haven't been talking a lot throughout this podcast because I've been listening and like I was trying to understand and get more insight. And that's a good thing as well. Sometimes you just have to yeah. listen. You, I came here thinking maybe I'm going to say a lot, but I didn't. And that's totally fine mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I learned so much. Yeah. And um, yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I think I mostly took away like, how awesome disability services is and how like great I feel as a partner with this office <laughs> in the home day. Um, and then just thinking too, like, um, it's been an interesting day because I was actually like, I had um, folks from a transfer school come um, for a field trip that I kind of learn about multicultural affairs office and like uh, just how they see themselves here at MCC. And that's different because in, like to that point, you're like, I'm 24 and I'm coming to college. What's that standard? And so like that also is like blowing my mind of like how I can better be like um, an ally, a coach for students um, and not to read their minds, but maybe probing questions, maybe to educate myself more a little bit, not to get you know too much into folks, but like maybe to like, um, what are some things that I can do to like make myself a little bit more approachable so that people can disclose to me um, and then I can help um, more so. So like, that's what I got away from here is yeah, more of a better owl. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes. 
Shelly, you have any final, final thoughts on this? Um, no, not really. It was great to listen to everybody, what everyone else had to say. And I, I know I threw my stuff out there too. So yeah, just thank you. This was a pretty good podcast. Oh yeah. Good. Thank you all so much. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you.